Second Peter chapter two, verse one. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many who will, I'm sorry, many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. This is the word of God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in our hearts. Thank you that this word even though it was written by men out of their real experiences and circumstances with their personality, their styles of writing, yet God spoke through men as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So, Holy Spirit, would you speak to us this morning? Speak through your word. Change us through it. Convict us of sins. Encourage us in the truth of the gospel. Make us more like Jesus. Fix our eyes on him. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. Well, despite many businesses struggling in the past year, one industry in particular has done very well. Even with closed borders and empty streets, The illegal smuggling and dealing of drugs has thrived during COVID, according to journalists and and different charities. Smugglers and dealers going to extra lengths to keep the supply going. They've done better out of COVID rather than worse. Governments will always be battling against this deadly flow of drugs into their countries. Even with the most sophisticated secret operations, there will always be smugglers 
and dealers. And indeed, these are the two parties, the two groups of people that we need for this sort of thing to happen. We need people on the outside to smuggle illegal contraband into a country. And we also need people on the inside, citizens of that country, to deal those drugs out. And then, of course, people to buy it as well. That's a good way of thinking about how the Bible talks about false teachers. False teaching is a deadly poison. Just as drugs are the scourge of any society and destroy it, false teaching has destroyed denominations, churches, and individuals who were once faithful and professed to believe in Christ. False teaching is smuggled in from the outside, but it also requires people on the inside to accept it and to teach it and to encourage it amongst other people. The world's way of thinking and living can so easily be smuggled into the church, any church, any church, and then taught by those on the inside, whether from the pulpit or in private conversations between individuals. So what can we do about that? Well, before I answer that question, we need to recognize what we're dealing with. And for Peter, it's not the smugglers. It's not those coming from the outside in. It's the dealers. It's those on the inside. It's the enemy within that Peter is dealing with. The enemy within. The most striking and concerning uh, feature about these false teachers is the fact that Verse 1, just as in Old Testament times among the people of Israel, there were false teachers, false prophets, sorry. Just as that was the case, there will be false teachers among you. They come from the inside. They're one of our own, Peter is saying. Or at least they were one of our own. Now, Peter borrows a lot of language and ideas from the letter uh, of Jude. Uh, he He copied his homework, if you like. It was so good. Why fix it if it's broke? But he changed certain things to fit his own circumstances that he was writing into, to the people that he was addressing. And where Jude is focusing on those who crept in, smugglers, if you like, to carry on that illustration, those on the outside coming in, Peter is concerned with the dealers, those who are on the inside teaching these things. Firstly, consider that false teachers will arise from within. In verse 1, it looks as though Peter's giving a warning here that uh, there will be false teachers. So they're, they're coming, watch out. But as we read on, we realize that that's just a way of writing, a, a stylistic thing, because they're already here. It becomes very clear as we read through chapter 2. They're already here and they're already at work. The fact that false teachers, sorry, false teaching is a problem within the churches that Peter writes to can be seen in three ways. So let me try and summarize this. Let me try and paraphrase what Peter is saying in these first three verses. First, he's saying, he's saying, listen, these false teachers, they made a profession before you. They made a profession before you, a profession of faith. 
They are denying the master who bought them. Now that's a difficult verse, admittedly. If these people are not Christians, and it becomes clear from Peter that they're not, did they lose their salvation? Did Jesus die for them and buy them, redeem them, save them? And then they lost that. Because we know that's not what we believe in this church, and rightly so. As with any difficult verse, we need to read on and read the fuller context. So if you scan your eyes down to verse 21, and at a future date I'll be spending more time on these verses, but for now read this verse with me. He's talking about the false teachers, and he says, It would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it, to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. And so it's possible to know the way of righteousness, to know the gospel, to hear that holy commandment of Jesus, to repent and believe the gospel. It's possible to know these things and to hear these things and even to look as though you've believed to be considered by your brothers and sisters as one who has been bought by Jesus. And yet, in subsequent months or years or even decades to prove by what you say and what you do that you never really knew him. No, it's not possible to lose your salvation. It's possible to look like you're saved, but later on to reveal that actually, You never really did trust in the Savior. They made a profession of faith before you. Secondly, they have fellowship with you. That phrase, among you, it implies that these people were involved in every aspect of church life. You see that down in verse 13 as well when it talks about how uh, these people, they feast with you. These are probably the the early church the early church feasts that they would have had that led into the lord's supper they had lord's supper with these people they they were baptized into the church they took part in every aspect of church life they looked the part they started their journey as converts into the church they made that profession of faith they shared a table with their brothers and sisters, but somewhere along the way, they started doing these things not not out of love, not out of a sense of belonging, not out of a sense of serving their brothers and sisters, but to serve themselves. Because these false appearances were now designed to gain influence over the believers. They have influence over you, is the third thing that Peter wants to say. In verse 1, we're told that they secretly bring in destructive heresies, false teachings. They're not content just to believe these things and keep it to themselves. They want to teach them. And they do that in various ways. Verse 3, they exploit you. Verse 13, they deceive you. Verses 14 and 18, they entice you. In other words, these are all underhand tactics. They're trying to get people in the church to come on to their side, to believe what they believe and to live the way they live. They promise freedom, verse 19. 
And so they have a platform. Again, maybe it's not the pulpit. Maybe it's a more secretive platform of a one-to-one conversation with someone, a book recommendation, a conversation in someone's house. But they have influence. And that's why Peter is writing. And so the false teachers, they will arise from within and they will teach destructive things. Secondly, they will teach destructive things. Now, we're not given a whole lot of detail about what they actually teach, and we'll see why that is in a moment, but there are a few clues. How did they deny the master who bought them? Well, it seems to be mostly a denial of the second coming of Jesus. They denied that Jesus would come again to judge the wicked and the sea of the righteous. And that really comes out in chapter three, as we'll see when we get there. And it's no surprise that the false teachers deny the second coming of Jesus as a judge who will judge the behavior of believers. Because they teach destructive things to justify their sin, to justify their sin. That's why they're doing it. And this is the focus of Peter in this chapter. He's not really concerned so much about what they're teaching. The people already know what they're teaching. He's more concerned with how they live. And that's the lion's share of this chapter and even spilling into chapter three as well. In verse two, he talks about their sensuality, which is almost certainly talking about sexual immorality. We see that come out in verse 10. Uh, He talks about the lust of defiling passion. And in verse 14, he talks about them having eyes full of adultery, eyes full of adultery. And so if Jesus isn't coming to judge them, they're free, as they would see it, to indulge in whatever sexual behavior they like. They're saved by grace. Doesn't matter how I live. Verse 3 Greed is a problem as well. And so they're probably selling this false teaching to the believers in some way or another. Verse 14, they have hearts trained in greed. That is some phrase. Hearts trained in greed. You don't have to be a charlatan prosperity preacher that you see on TV and hear about on the internet in order to do this. Because there are many Christian authors and publishers and bookstores with the label evangelical who sell books for a profit that clearly deny the master. And sadly, these books make their way onto the shelves of Christian bookshops and Christian homes. I hope you're discerning about what books you buy and read outside of the Bible and yet, of course, there's, a, there's an opposite danger there that we think, well, there's so much danger out there. These are just the words of men. Give me the Bible, me and my Bible. That's all I need. But the problem is with just you and your Bible, you're likely to fall into the same traps that heretics of the centuries past have fallen into again and again and again. So be discerning. That's the key. Not to throw the Christian books away, not to just read anything that comes your way, 
but to be discerning and to measure it up against the scriptures. So sensuality is a problem, greed's a problem, and in verse 10, they despise authority. They despise authority. They are bold and willful. They don't have the power to stand up in the pulpit and preach perhaps that they would like. And so they create their own illegitimate platform to teach whatever it is they're teaching. Greed, sensuality, presumed authority. These are just the age-old idols of money, sex, and power that every generation has to contend with. The Bible consistently exposes false teaching for what it is. More often than not, it's just an excuse to live how you want. We tend to think that we decide what we believe and then from that we work out how to live. But in reality, we decide how we want to live. We follow our heart and then we find reasons to justify that. But perhaps the greater sin of the false teachers is that they're also leading others astray. They're not content to keep it to themselves. They want others to join them. And and Peter, you'll notice, is not attempting here to rebuke or change the minds of the false teachers. Peter's primary concern now is that they would lead no one else astray. And so he's speaking to the believers here to be on their guard against these people. Many will follow their sensuality, Peter warns. Many inside the church will follow after them. Don't be one of them. And then on the outside, on the outside, they, the way of truth will be blasphemed. They, they lead others astray outside the church who could have been welcomed in to the sound of the gospel but are disgusted by the behavior of those that they see inside the church. And so this is what is really sad about the false teachers. They're leading others astray. And so I think you'll agree already that this is not a fun chapter to read or to preach on. But like foul-tasting medicine, it's good for us. It's important. Why was Peter telling his flock these things? And what is the Holy Spirit saying to us this morning through it? Well, several things. We're, we're reminded of the deadly power of sin, how it captures our hearts, and then we'll find any excuse to do it. And we'll think more about that next time. But Peter's primary purpose here is to put steel in the spine of believers who want to resist the false teachers who want to be godly but feel overwhelmed by their influence. Perhaps leaders who are trying to persuade the true believers not to go that way but to stick to the true way. For some churches and denominations, the smugglers and the dealers have already made significant ground and faithful ministers who still exist in those denominations and churches They face stresses and strains that you and I, as Irish Baptists, will mercifully know nothing about. I hope you pray for them. You might think it's time for them to leave those denominations, but that's not for us to decide. We should pray for them. I know that you can think of people 
even nearby in our own town, who, who are standing up for the gospel in denominations that are split. So pray for them. But what about us? We too need encouragement because the internet and social media are great tools for spreading the gospel and they're great tools for spreading false teaching as well. Schools where our children are, are going are filled with good Christian teachers and we know that in our own congregation. But more and more they're being pressured and no doubt will soon be required to teach things that are completely contrary to God's word. So what do we do? We who believe the gospel, who want to live godly lives and to resist, well, the false teachers appear to be powerful and prosperous. But finally, in this point, they will be destroyed and the righteous will be saved. The false teachers will be destroyed and the righteous will be saved. The word destruction is repeated a lot in this chapter, especially in the first few verses. Uh, the false teachers in verse 1 are teaching destructive heresies. They're teaching destructive things. And then the phrase sensuality, follow their sensuality, uh, is actually a word in the original language very like destruction. In fact, the New King James says destructive ways. You follow their destructive ways. But what happens is this. Their outcome is this. They are bringing upon themselves swift destruction. If you live in a destructive way and teach destructive things, you will be destroyed. Verse 3 emphasizes this. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle. Their destruction is not asleep. It is coming. It is coming. Now, don't misunderstand here. The, the eternal punishment of unbelievers is nothing to revel in. We should, we should lament it. We should long to see them won back to the gospel but we can take comfort in this, that we are on the right side of history. You've probably heard that phrase a lot recently. The Christian church is on the wrong side of history. It's time to get with the times. And it can appear as though we are on the wrong side of history, but not so. Not so. Their judgment is certain. The Lord is not slow to come again. As some count slowness, is what Peter will say. Their destruction is not asleep. It is coming swiftly. And so verse 9, which Peter is building to, is the key verse here. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. That's the key verse. So believer, hold fast to the gospel that you've believed in. Stay on the way of truth. Be diligent to confirm your calling and election. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior. All of these commands and encouragements that come from Peter's letter here, they're designed to give us a spine of steel. Not our own confidence that comes from within, but a confidence that comes 
from knowing the truth of the gospel. Remember what Christ has done for you. Remember he is coming and remember in between he is in control. He has all authority. So live in light of that. Not in light of what you see out there. Not in light of what you hear, which troubles you. For some people that means not caving into the temptations that the world offers them. For others it means persevering even though it looks as though the the church is losing and the workplace or the school that you're in is a trial. Trials and temptations, maybe a bit of both if we're honest, but hold fast to the Savior in trial and temptation for he is in control. And if you just skip on a couple there, Rodney, And one more, that is the main idea of this passage. Hold fast to the Savior in trial and temptation, for he is in control. Now the rest of what I have to say in the remaining 10 minutes or so simply bolsters this idea. Hold fast to the Savior in trial and temptation, for he is in control. Before Peter gets to this key verse in verse 9, in verses 4 to 8, he gives three Old Testament pictures of God's judgment. And within those pictures, there are two pictures of people who were saved by God and were faithful to him. And these stories, they really ground these truths. It's all very well telling us the truth. But giving us human examples is a really powerful way of putting flesh and bones on it and giving us confidence. And so Peter uses this this structure, which is a little bit hard to follow at first, but verse four, if God didn't spare angels, but held them in in chains until judgment, if, verse five, if he didn't spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, verse six, if by turning Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, verse seven, if by rescuing righteous Lot, if, 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 verse nine, then, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. And so let's look firstly at these three pictures of judgment. They're designed to give us confidence in a God who saves his own people, even as he judges his enemies. And so let me ask you two questions here. First of all, do you feel overpart? Do you feel overpart? Well, in verse 4, the rebel angels, which we can read about in Genesis 6, were certainly powerful beings, spiritual beings, who sinned by coming down and having sex with human people, with women. They disobeyed God's design for sex. They disobeyed God's design for creation, a created world and a a spiritual world which are different and shouldn't be mixed. And so he put them under chains. He is keeping them in a kind of spiritual prison until the day they will be judged. And they're a perfect parallel for the false teachers who also twist and rebel against God's design for sex. 
And then verse 6, similarly, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, they too overturned God's good design for sex when, when men attempted to take Lot's angelic visitors and by force to have sex with them. A reverse mirror image, really, of the rebel angels in Genesis 6. But Peter says they became an example of what happens to the ungodly. Even today, the names of those cities are a byword for God's destruction on wicked people. Spiritual and human superpowers they were. Angelic beings, great cities, and yet they were no match for God's power. And so the superpowers, whatever they are today, of governments, lobby groups, big businesses, even just society as a whole, or your workplace, if you feel overpowered, it's no match for God's power. God's power, which is at work in you to make you godly. Secondly, let me ask, do you feel outnumbered? Well, in verse 5, we read about Noah. God did not spare the ancient world. The world. This is a universal example. The entire world apart from one man and his family who were faithful and believed. Even if you feel outnumbered, remember this. God remembered Noah. He remembered him. And he saved him in the midst of judgment. Elijah faced the wicked anti-God cruelty of King Ahaz and Queen Jezebel. But God revealed to Elijah that he had 1,000, sorry, thousands of faithful prophets in hiding. Daniel faced the lions. His friends faced the flames in a foreign land that didn't know the God of Israel, but God protected them. The angel of the Lord was with them in the den and in the furnace. And you and me, also outnumbered and overpowered in different ways, but God knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. That's three pictures of judgment. But finally, we have two pictures of righteousness. Two pictures of righteousness. These two examples show us what it means to have faith and to live by faith in the God who saves us, even in the midst of difficult circumstances. And so first we have Noah, who was an obedient herald of righteousness. Look again with me at verse 5. Noah, a herald of righteousness, it calls him. A herald of righteousness. Well, firstly, Noah, we know, obeyed the gospel. He didn't have a full gospel in his day, but he obeyed God's call to repent from the sins of those around him and to accept God's way of salvation, which in his case was the ark. And he obeyed. He didn't just say, okay, God, I believe you, and then sit back in his chair. No, he got his tools out and he built the ark in the midst of, no doubt, mockery. 
Hebrews says, in holy fear, he built the ark. He obeyed the gospel. And we've been learning in this letter of Peter that when we believe in the gospel, we also have to obey the gospel. It changes us. We live lives of obedience to God. But secondly, we have to tell the gospel. And that's where this phrase, herald of righteousness, comes in. Now, this is a little bit of an addition to the story in Genesis. We don't read about Noah there preaching the gospel and warning other people, but it's a Jewish tradition that had developed and Peter accepts it. And it seems, it seems perfectly legitimate that Noah would have had to explain what on earth he was doing and to even warn other people, listen, come with me, join me in God's way of salvation. Similarly, we read about Egyptians in the presence of the Israelites after they have crossed the Red Sea. God always provides a way to save those in the Old Testament who are not Israelites. But he tells the gospel. He gives a call to repentance before a righteous God. And so we are reminded of what Peter has been telling us. When we're saved by God's grace, we live by God's grace, we obey the gospel, and we make efforts to share that good news with other people too. Now, if you're like me, and I think most of us, evangelism isn't easy, especially in a world that is increasingly antagonistic towards the Christian faith. And so what better way to think through these things and pray with each other than coming along to our home groups in the church, which start on the 30th of June. We'll be looking at the theme of evangelism for five or six weeks every other week. What a great way to read God's word and, and think about evangelism, to be honest about the struggles and the difficulties and to think of ways in which we can reach other people who are facing the same judgment that the ancient world faced. So can I encourage you to come along to that? And if you can't come along to that, to be praying and thinking through how you can reach other people, how you can be a herald of righteousness like Noah was. Second example then, and if you'll skip a couple of points there, Rodney, Lot. We had Noah, an obedient herald of righteousness. Now we have Lot, a troubled, righteous soul. Firstly, we learn from Lot that being righteous means hating evil. Being righteous means hating evil. If you look in verse 7, we realize that Lot was greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, the things he saw and heard in Sodom and Gomorrah. And in verse 8, we learn that he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Whenever we read the story of Lot, we're perhaps not altogether convinced that he's a good guy. What's he even doing there? But we learn from Peter that Lot in no way enjoyed living in Sodom and Gomorrah. And he was greatly distressed, tormented, conflicted about being in that place. Being righteous means hating evil. 
But being righteous, we learn, does not mean being perfect. Being righteous does not mean perfection. And if we go back to Genesis, and we don't have time to do that, maybe you could do that later. You read of a man who, when he was warned of the coming judgment by these angelic visitors, he hesitated. He hesitated several times. And he, he had to be escorted out of that city, dragged almost by these angels. And like Noah, the story of Lot ends in a scene of drunkenness. He wasn't perfect. That's not Peter's point. Being righteous does not mean being perfect. It means, ultimately, it means having faith in the God who saves you. It means being on the journey away from evil living towards godly living. It's so easy to see Lot as a compromised believer when we read about him. What's he doing there? But Peter insists he is not there because he approves of their morals. And it's easy for us living in a very wealthy, secure part of the world not to understand that for Lot, a walled city was the ultimate protection for his family. A walled city with a house and a locked door. You couldn't get much safer than that in the ancient world. He felt he had no option. Now, should he have trusted God more? Yes, of course he should have. And I'm certainly not excusing him this morning, but he certainly didn't enjoy his stay there. And so Lot is a wonderful story for us. For those of us who feel like weak Christians, we love the Lord, we really do. We're battling against sin. And when we fall into it again, we hate it. We wish we had more faith, less hesitation about following Jesus wholeheartedly. Lot is a story for us. Not so much an example for us, but a reminder that it is ultimately the Lord who carries us, who saves us by his grace and sustains us by his grace. And so if you feel weak, brother or sister, like Lot, overpowered, outnumbered, Peter reminds us this morning to hold fast to the Savior in trial and temptation, for he is in control. He has the power. He has the grace and the mercy to sustain you. The grace and the mercy to work through you, to reach others with that gospel. Hold fast to him, but be reminded that as we listen to this morning, ultimately, It is he who holds fast us. He has us in his hands, not the other way around. I want to close by reading the words of a modern hymn. We've listened to a few hymns by a music group called Emu Music over the past months. But just let me read these words in closing. Hurting one, Take heart, for your king will walk beside with each rising sun, every grace he will provide. In the hardest day, he will never forsake, for he knows your grief and he feels your pain. 
When the world gives way, Jesus will remain. Waiting one, take heart, for your king will soon return. Ending every strife, he will reign upon the earth. In the longest day, know the victory is won. Do not fear the world. He has overcome. You are safe in him, covered by his love. Let's pray. Father, thank you indeed for the Lord Jesus, our mighty, powerful saviour who is in control and who has overcome the world. And so when we face the trials and temptations on the outside of the church or even on the inside, as they come in, Lord, help us to hold fast to the one who is holding fast to us. Amen. We're going to sing our final piece this morning.